Before we begin, I want to tell you about a really funny and insightful movie podcast called I Saw What You Did. Every week, Millie DeCherico and Daniel Henderson share a double feature with a different wild theme and explore how our life stories impact the movies that we love. Millie and Danielle discuss cult classics through a feminist lens, have conversations about their film crushes throughout the ages, and provide hilarious hot takes on just about everything. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can follow I Saw What You Did wherever you get your podcasts. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. I'm Eric Malinsky. When it comes to science fiction or fantasy stories set in New York City, as a New Yorker, I'm a little spoiled. In fact, when a new movie or show is set here, I go in kind of skeptical. I want to make sure they've really taken the time to understand and appreciate the city that they're about to destroy with the aliens, robots, demons, or supervillains. Although I do have my moments. If I'm walking between a narrow canyon of skyscrapers, I like to imagine that Spider-Man is swinging between them. Or if a really ominous storm cloud is hanging over Manhattan, I like to think the Ghostbusters are out there, getting ready for work. But for most places in the world, there is a chasm between their lived experiences and what they see in sci-fi fantasy worlds. So when a show or a movie or a book takes place in their hometown, fans will flock there to feel the magic in that location. There's even a term for this, set jetting. That happened to the town of Forks in Washington state where Twilight takes place. The set of Luke Skywalker's home from episode four has been turned into a hotel You can actually stay there in Tunisia. And of course, the entire country of New Zealand has attracted fans of Lord of the Rings ever since the movies were filmed there. I think set jetting is an interesting phenomenon because you're coming to a real place with an imaginary place in your head. Can you get to that point where the real world melts away and you're seeing the fantasy world right in front of you? And what happens to the locals when they find themselves among all these tourists who want to see something that is and isn't there? Let's take a trip around the world to find out. Jen Cresswell is a tour guide in Edinburgh, and they have a big tourism industry there around Harry Potter. When I first heard about this, I was confused. Edinburgh is never mentioned in the books. It's not mentioned in the films either, even though part of the films were filmed in the north of Scotland. So I asked Jen, what's the connection? 
Well, you do a Harry Potter tour of Edinburgh and it does come back to JK Rowling. I say Edinburgh is the springboard for the wizarding world. So nothing is a direct copy. Nothing is identical to what you get in the books and the films. But I think it's that imagination, that that spark that just kind of worked her way, worked its way into her mind as she was writing the books and researching them. And I think therefore you find a lot of Edinburgh in the books. How exactly? Um, so for a lot of people, it's physical. So Edinburgh's got a lot of medieval streets, We've still got the old town with buildings dating back to the 16th century. We also have a lot of um, private schools, which in Scotland are just built like castles. There's no way around it. They've got the turrets, the gargoyles, the towers. So when J.K. Rowling came to Edinburgh, she moved here after her divorce in Portugal. This was where her sister lived. And I always say to people, it's the only family she really had at the time. She had no contact with her father at that time. And so she needed that family support. She was an unemployed single parent on state benefits. Um, she was suffering from depression. And she says that Edinburgh was good to her. It helped her, gave her what she needed without setting criteria on that help so that she could reach her full potential and it didn't judge her. Well, has she commented on the tours and said, oh yes, this is all true or like, no, no, oh. this is true. <laughs> no, <laughs> gossip time. So she has gone on Twitter to say that all the tours are terribly wrong and inaccurate and everything we say is completely wrong. <laughs> She's posted tweets saying, people say this is this and it's not. I've never been here. I've never seen this. Her daughter went on one tour and apparently laughed throughout. All I will say is, firstly, different guides, different companies, all of our tours are slightly different and we've all done different levels of research. I don't know which tour they went on. I try and make sure everything I say is backed up by interviews or things she has said in the past. But also, I think, given recent opinions of J.K. Rowling, um, to put it mildly, uh, which the fans, as a general rule, definitely do not agree with, I feel like she's now just basically trolling the fans. And I get that sense with Edinburgh, because ultimately, Harry Potter tourism is not an industry she has any control over. But I find that, oh, things that she says has contradicted things she said in previous interviews. So I kind of talk about old JK Rowling, as she was when she first came to Edinburgh, when she was writing the books, because ultimately that is what my tour's about, her writing the books in Edinburgh, not who she has become. Um, so tell me a bit more about your tours. What are some of the highlights? One of the big highlights is we have this street. Well, it's actually two streets that connect, Victoria Street and Westbow. It's said to be a key inspiration for Diagon Alley. Uh, J.K. Rowling has now gone come out to say it's not, but it is identical to Diagon Alley, and it's a, such a beautiful street. And so I always do a stop for photographs there. And, and again, I say to people that actually J.K. Rowling has never said what Diagon Alley is inspired by. I believe this is the inspiration. I call it my only maybe on the tour. Welcome, Harry, to Diagon Alley. In the books, Diagon Alley is a narrow street of shops that sell magic items to students at Hogwarts. In the movies, the filming locations for Diagon Alley were actually in London, but Jen is looking at what may have inspired J.K. Rowling in the first place. Ironically, Harry Potter tourism has actually created a lot of shops in Edinburgh, 
that sell magic wands and other items. This is complete Edinburgh gossip time now, so I hope you got your gossiping pose to listen into. My gossiping pose? Yes, exactly. Yes. Okay, people can't see. I got. I got to figure out what this is going to be. My gossiping pose. I think I'm put my my hand my hand on my chin. It's very good. It's very good. <laughs> For those listening, okay. it is fantastic. Um, <laughs> so the Royal Mile is full of shops that we call Tart and Tat, which are your souvenir shops, and they're all owned by one family. And this family has now branched out rather into Harry Potter shops as well. So they've got a chain of Harry Potter shops again throughout the city. And that has changed the city landscape because with these shops going in, a lot of local businesses like small cafes or independent shops can't take those spaces because the rents are so high and they're really the only family that can afford to move into those places. So they're going in now and instead of putting up another tartan shop, they're now putting in Harry Potter shops. But a few cafes have been thriving. The places where J.K. Rowling used to go to write the Harry Potter books. At the Elephant House Cafe, a table where J.K. Rowling used to write in the 90s has become a major tourist destination. And Harry Potter tourism has affected historical sites. Like, there's an old graveyard called Greyfriars Kirkyard. The Greyfriars Kirkyard is where there's some graves associated with the Harry Potter books. There's a good view of a school, which is of the same type of Hogwarts, this kind of castle-like baronial schools. So many people now go into the graveyard to visit the graves. It's destroying the grass. It's They're having to cordon off areas, relay it, and then it will get trashed within a few months. And it's just absolutely destroying areas. Around the Tom Riddle grave, before they laid the pathway, I used to say to my customers, um, it's going to be, we're going to go to 1917 Belgium to get to this grave because it was just mud. I actually once had to piggyback a customer who was desperate to see the grave, but she just wore the wrong shoes, so she couldn't get to it. So I was like, come on, probably shouldn't do this. Piggybacked her to the grave. Is this one of those things, though, where, like, um, there's a grave that says Tom Riddle and J.K. Rowling's like, I've never seen that grave. I came up with the idea that the name... I've never been there. So it depends which tour guide you ask, because there are a lot of people say, oh, yes, this is the grave she got the Potter name from, and this is the grave she got the Scrimgeour name from. And she didn't. The only two that I kind of have some sort of elements for is McGonagall. Professor McGonagall is named after William McGonagall, who was a real Scottish poet. Um, So he's buried there. And Jake Ring said McGonagall is named after William McGonagall. But there is also the Thomas Riddle grave. And earlier on, Jake Renning said she did get the name from the grave. And it was a subconscious thing. So she wasn't going, oh, I'm going to use that. She says it must have been subconscious. But now she's saying, no, nothing to do with it. So again, this is current J.K. Rowling contradicting earlier J.K. Rowling. Hmm. Were you saying, too, that um, when we were texting or, or, or IMing about this, that some tours, if you want to gossip, some tours make stuff up? I don't think it's so much just make stuff up. I think it's they see something and go, oh, that must be this. The example I love is, um, I don't know which guide does this, but I've heard that one guy takes people to a statue of John Knox and go, this is the inspiration for Dumbledore. It's an old beardy white guy. Edinburgh's full of statues of old beardy white guys. <laughs> um, if anything, Dumbledore's the anti-John Knox because John Knox hated magic and witches and women. He was a massive misogynist. Um, 
But I think a lot of people try and pad out their tours by making them to be more in Edinburgh than there actually is. It's great that you're able to like positively reframe, you know, the whole story around J.K. Rowling and the books, because I mean, online, if I ever see her trending on Twitter, you know, it's it's going to be like a really ugly scene. It's like, oh, my God, what does she say now? Um, You know, everyone's really upset. And I know like for some Harry Potter fans, they feel like she's um, kind of spoiled their feelings about the Wizarding World. So, I mean, I'm glad to see that you're, you're able to like keep the magic alive, you know, to some extent. I, and I, get, I can only speak for myself. While I'm part of the LGBT community, I'm not trans. I try and be a trans ally, but I can never have that experience. And I can never tell a trans person how they should or shouldn't react. When I do my tours, I stay up front. I say, you know, she has said a lot of very controversial things and the majority of people in Edinburgh disagree with that. I don't mention explicitly trans issues because people in the tours are on their own journeys especially people with families. And I don't know if they've got a family member who's trans or on that journey. And that's a conversation they want to have with their children. So I never say explicitly. I always wear a trans pin so people know where I stand on the situation. That makes sense. I mean, I still think it's a fascinating thing that it's it's where she wrote the books but but she has denied almost almost everything except a two a two couple couple examples of like well no 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 okay fine yes i'll admit it i got that name from there but that there's this massive tourism industry there and people looking to see the magic in there that the author put in there even though the author herself is like no 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 there's nothing there i just think that's totally fascinating it is bizarre and it doesn't make the job easier sometimes uh when you when she says something like that you're just like oh I've got to rewrite this stop now. You know, um, often inspiration works on a subconscious level. And I think a lot of that has happened with J.K. Rowling. She's seeing a huge Scottish private school in a similar structure to a castle every day. And then she writes a book about a huge Scottish private school in a castle. And she's like, yeah, no connection. And if I'm honest, when you create a fantasy work, it's beautiful to let it explored by the fans to see what they want to see and then to go on their own journeys with the characters. I honestly think that's the greatest compliment anyone can give you in that your work is so rich that people can get so much out of it. Things that you never probably realised or intended to put in. I wouldn't say I feel sad for her, but I think she's missing a wonderful opportunity of bringing fans in, engaging with them and saying, how do you see this developing? What do you think about this? I honestly think she's built a barrier up and I think it's largely because the fans are now so much bigger than she is. Next up on our world tour, Croatia. If you've watched Game of Thrones, you have seen the city of Dubrovnik. That's where they film the scenes of King's Landing, which is the capital city in the mythical land of Westeros. Fans have come from around the world to take pictures of themselves in Dubrovnik, right where their favorite characters stood, or got beheaded, or poisoned, or burnt alive by a dragon. Yelena Shimak is a tour guide in Dubrovnik, and she gives tours to Game of Thrones fans. When she was younger, she wanted to be a history teacher, and she was a journalist for a while, but she felt like she really couldn't earn enough money with either career, at least not in Croatia. And then her husband suggested that she try being a tour guide. At first, she just did historical tours. With Game of Thrones, it also it, it wasn't planned at all because 
I was first uh, doing only historical tours, but then I realized I was getting more and more people on my tours who were interested in Game of Thrones, filming locations, uh, filming uh, filming of it in Dubrovnik. And I was like, okay, I could watch the show because, you know, I want to be able to answer the questions of my guests, but then <laughs> I got totally addicted to it. <laughs> She was also surprised to discover how much she enjoys being a tour guide. She gets to work outside when the weather's nice, and she loves meeting people from around the world. But there are logistical problems to these tours. The part of the city where they filmed Game of Thrones is over 500 years old. Some of the architecture is fragile. We're trying to deal with that by uh, limiting the number of the cruise ships coming at the same time. Uh, to Dubrovnik. Why? Because you have a situation that you have thousands and thousands of people all moving in the same direction and wanting to see the same things. What are some of the places in the show that you show them, like the specific steps or specific locations that they're like, oh my God, that's it. We're right here. I can't believe we're standing right here. Oh, yes. The most popular one is definitely Circe's Walk of Shame, film on the beautiful Jesuit steps in Dubrovnik. If you haven't seen the show, this is a scene where a member of the royal family, who has done horrible things, is forced by religious zealots to walk naked in front of her subjects. That's definitely a hot spot to be visited if you're a Game of Thrones fan. Uh, There are a lot of people there who are actually recreating the scene. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maybe not entirely naked, but uh, I saw a guest, a random guest, not the guest on my tour. She did it in her bodding suit in the color of of her skin. So it seemed like she did it naked, you know, and making a video. Yeah. Of the whole um, scene of the whole walk of shame. Yeah, uh, Joffrey's wedding celebration, uh, so the place where he was poisoned, uh, those are all of the places that uh, are definitely fascinating to every Game of Thrones fan that comes to Dubrovnik. Do you remember when they were filming the show? Oh, of course I do. <laughs> yeah, what was that like? I mean, do you remember, what, what, what were you seeing? It was very exciting, especially after we all realized how big uh, the TV show actually became, to be uh, seeing the main actors walking around the city in their costumes, uh, to see uh, how they were building the set for Game of Thrones uh, in Dubrovnik, to be guessing the scene, which was going to be from here or there. We would love to see House of the Dragon being filmed in Dubrovnik as well. Oh, it's not filmed in Dubrovnik? Mm, No, no. The first season, no. Let's see what happens with the with the next one. Really, that's so funny because it takes place in King King's Landing. I'm surprised they don't film it in Dubrovnik. There were a lot of indoor scenes, you know, uh, in that show. It was mostly about the building up the characters. I would say in that season. So let's see what happens in the next seasons of that uh, show. Maybe we're gonna see them back here in this city. Well, the good thing though is I'm sure because of House of the Dragon, it's kept the sort of um, it's kept Game of Thrones into people's minds. Like I totally thought they filmed it in Dubrovnik, so I mean, I, I would, you know, if I wanted to go see Game of Thrones, I'd, I'd, I think there was still new Dubrovnik stuff happening. Don't tell this to our guests. <laughs> okay, I won't. It's a secret. She's joking, of course, but Croatia is more dependent on tourism than any other country in the European Union. And that's not because Croatia is getting more tourists. It's because Croatia came onto the world stage fairly recently. 
For most of the 20th century, Croatia was part of Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia was a communist nation. It wasn't entirely behind the Iron Curtain, but it was formidable to Western tourists. After the fall of the Soviet Empire, Yugoslavia collapsed into a series of internal wars, which lasted for a decade. When Game of Thrones first came on the air in 2011, Croatia had been peaceful for a while, but Yelena says people were still feeling isolated. We went through some really tough time. It was uh, four years of war in Croatia. Our cities were destroyed. Our industry was destroyed. Uh, of course, no tourists in that time, no tourism at all, practically. Uh, when we started to recover after the war, it happened really quickly, actually, here. Um, uh, the biggest uh, problem here was uh, to change the mindset of people, you know, from thinking, let's say, communist sort of uh, way to ca capitalist. You know, in, uh, for me, I, I was always looking for a new boss in my life. Uh, it took me a lot of years to realize I don't need to be searching for a boss. I could be my own boss. So it takes a lot of time to change that mindset of people. Yeah, that's actually really interesting, the idea of shifting the mindset from communism, not just to, to capitalism, but you have this very entertainment. Now, now with Game of Thrones, it's this entertainment-based capitalism of this fantasy story, which ironically is about a feudal system, um, but it's a very, like, you know, Hollywood or, or Western style of a little bit of show business capitalism is very different from just plain old capitalism. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It is very different. After the war, when we started uh, rebuilding our cities uh, and when people realized that things have changed here, it was uh, like uh, the world started discovering Croatia, finally. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a big and it was a sudden change, I'm going to tell you that, but it was a good change for us because it gave us, uh, you know, in that... Uh, Post-war period, uh, people, a lot of people were jobless. You're working for a really low salary if you manage to find the work at all. Um, no, not a lot of options uh, you have uh, with things to do in your life. Um, uh, you're kind of totally limited. And it, 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 gave, us, um, it gave us a new hope. I, I see these new generations here in Dubrovnik. They, have, they all have their plans of what to do with their lives. In the post-war period, we didn't have plans at all. We were just living day by day, you know? It was all about, you know, surviving. Not a lot of thinking about the future. The height of tourism was in 2019. There were big parties for the series finale of Game of Thrones, and they showed the final episode on screens throughout the old city. So how good things were going in 2019 with Game of Thrones... Uh, Dubrovnik extended its season basically on the winter months as well. We were having a lot of flights in the winter. Uh, we were really happy about it because Dubrovnik can be really isolated in the winter months from the rest of the world. It's really hard to reach, unfortunately. Uh, so there were more and more flights in 2019 in the winter with a lot of uh, uh, very optimistic plans for 2020 and then all canceled. It was when I started receiving all of those cancellations for my tours when the pandemic was uh, announced. I was really sad about it, like everybody here in Dubrovnik. And then we thought, okay, 
one year you can survive it and then the next year came and it was really hard on us uh, because you know like you're living on what you saved in the good years but uh, you know that's not gonna last i'm gonna tell you we were mostly saved by the american gas here especially in the first uh, uh, summer of the pandemic was the only country of European Union accepting American guests uh, in Dubrovnik, in Croatia. I mean, a lot of American guests who actually, we could easily say, saved our tourist season. Wow, that makes me feel almost almost patriotic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, Americans along with the British are top guests in Dubrovnik. Can you talk a little bit more, too, just about how these Game of Thrones tours have changed your life? In a lot of great ways. <laughs> yeah, tell me. I told you, I mean, first of all, it gave me an opportunity to become my own boss. That was a great thing that happened to me. And uh, when I realized I could blend it with the history, it was, um, it was the best thing that's happened to me because it was my personal renaissance, to be honest with you, Eric. I started earning normal money. <laughs> uh, I was doing the job I love. I was working. I am working with the great people. <laughs> it was the best thing that happened to me. We have a long virtual flight ahead of us, so let's take a break. When we get back, we'll land in a tiny town in the Australian outback, just beyond the Thunderdome. Catherine Ferry is a listener who lives in the town of Broken Hill, which is deep in the Australian outback. The population of Broken Hill is just over 17,000 people, but they get hundreds of thousands of tourists every year. And dozens of movies and shows have been filmed there. Many of these stories are about characters who struggle to survive. Catherine thinks this part of Australia holds a special place in the imagination of people who live in the coastal cities. I think that because it is so isolated, when you drive, you'll go for hours without coming to a town. So, yeah, and if you break down that you'll be stuck in the middle of nowhere and, you know, and people do die on a fairly regular basis where their car breaks down off the, the main roads and, yeah, and they die of, you know, heat or um, exhaustion or, you know, those sorts. of So it is, it is actually a, a real thing. Um, and I think the when people aren't used to um, so much space, it can actually disconcert people, I suppose, for lack of a better word. Yeah, I find it quite disturbing. But one of the most famous movies set in the outback was a comedy. How long have we been on the road? Four and a half hours. The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert is a film from 1994 about two drag queens and a transgender woman who go on a road trip. What have we got here, eh? A couple of showgirls, have we? When they get to Broken Hill, the characters face homophobic abuse from some of the locals. But the tone of the film is uplifting and joyful. In fact, the movie is so popular, and they get so many fans coming to Broken Hill, they now have an annual drag fest. Honestly, if you'd told me, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, that, you know, we'd have a, an annual drag festival, I would have... Yeah, I thought there's absolutely no way. Uh, but, yeah, it's become a regular feature on the annual calendar. And, yeah, and from that, it's sort of uh, we've now got 
resident drag queens basically so you know people who live here who um make a living out of um you know things for tourists they have uh drag bingo there was drag karaoke there was you know <laughs> but the biggest movie franchise that's still being filmed in this area is mad max the first movie was a sleeper hit in 1979 the sequel in 1981 which was called the road warrior in the u.s turned Mad Max into a global phenomenon. In the future, cities will become deserts, roads will become battlefields, and the hope of mankind will appear as a stranger. And they recently finished filming a spin-off movie about the character Furiosa, who is in the 2015 film Mad Max Fury Road. There is also a Mad Max museum now that's been established uh, which was set up by a man from Yorkshire who decided to move his whole family out to the outback and set up uh, this museum. Have you been to this museum? Yes. Yeah, no, it is. It's fantastic. Yeah, what is it like? Tell me. Yeah, it's it's only quite small, but you, you go in and the, uh, I suppose the reception area is just plastered with photos from the filming, uh, which Adrian is the, the name of the chap who set it all up. And he's managed to get quite a number of the vehicles that were uh, used for the filming. You know, these sort of patched together sort of strange vehicles. I when I was in um, high school, I had the I used to watch the videotape of the Road Warrior over and over again. It was one of my favorite oh, movies yeah. to watch in high school. Yes, it's a oh, it's a cracker of a film. I remember I saw it when I was about eight, and I think that was when it came out. And I just oh, just in love, you know, like yes. I had to talk to this man, who moved to the Outback to create a Mad Max museum. Although, I learned later on that the museum is specifically focused on Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. And the museum is in Silverton, which is the closest town to Broken Hill. The population of Silverton is 50 people, including Adrian Bennett and his wife. Adrian first saw Mad Max and Mad Max 2 when he was growing up in the north of England. His friends had dragged him to the cinema to watch a double feature of these Australian films that he had never heard of. I went there with a little bit of an attitude, thinking, oh, this is going to be rubbish, you know. Uh, and anyway, so I goes in there. I, you know, I never even looked at the poster, so I had no idea what to expect. So I was going in there completely blind. Yeah, so I gets in there, and um, I couldn't believe it. I, I was so taken by what I'd seen. And my friends were laughing at me afterwards, you know, the, 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 when I came out, they, were saying, they said, oh, we were looking at your face when, when you were watching the film. They said, uh, your eyes were like saucers and your jaw was on the floor, you know, and it, and it grabbed a hold of me. For the next two decades, he kept his fandom alive in different ways. He built a replica of one of the cars in Mad Max, which is called the Interceptor. He even named two of his sons after crew members from the films. But during this time, his real goal was to see the landscape of Mad Max in real life. So we got to a point where the kids were growing up and we were in a position where we could actually uh, visit Australia. This was 2004, so it's quite a long time after the film. We got into Silverton. We came through Broken Hill, got into Silverton. We grabbed a, a beer at the Silverton Hotel, the famous Silverton Hotel, and then we drove out to the Monday Monday Lookout, which is a very famous lookout used in the film and other films as well, like Razorback and Priscilla. But I got to the lookout and I couldn't believe it. I got all goosebumpy and the hairs went up on the back of my neck and I was I couldn't believe I was stood where in the in this famous area, you know, where 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 Max had stood and where some of the scenes were shot. And I just turned to 
to my wife, Linda, and I just said, do you think you could live here? Well, thinking it would never happen, she said yes. So there, <laughs> there was the first mistake. So, so that was it. So we, we, we returned back to the UK and then started the ball rolling to, to come and live here. So the idea was to move first. When did you come up with the idea for the museum? Well, it originally came, well, it wasn't so much the idea that came, but it was just a thought I had when when we first came on holiday. I, I mean, I was ex- really excited to be here, but but I just found it really odd that there was really nothing here at all, actually, to pay homage to any of the, the big iconic movies that, that have been shot here, and especially Mad Max 2. And I thought, well, and it was only an idea, just a dream. I mean, I was lucky, lucky enough to get to Australia, let alone to think I could ever move out here, but... I just thought to myself, if I am lucky enough to ever move either to Broken Hill or Silverton, but preferably Silverton because we're more in the outback, uh, I had this idea that I would at least try and do some type of display. So when we got here in September of 2009, we bought a property, and, and of course, as part of that property, the garden was, was it's quite a big garden or quite a big yard. And so we divided it into and decided to, I decided, look, I'm going to put this building up and fingers crossed, I can fill it. I can actually start to fill it with memorabilia. First thing I was given was actually, it was quite a lot of photographs taken by some of the locals that were that were actually in the movie. So in the meantime of waiting and hope, hoping that things would start to turn up, I just started to, to put these photographs up and start to make the display. We'd, we'd gather no, enough things to warrant opening the doors, but I was never happy. I suppose now, 12 years on, I'm probably the happiest that I've been because we've pretty much covered all bases, but it's taken 12 years to get to this point. Until this point, I thought, oh, well, I could do with this and I could do with that. And, you know, is it really good enough? You know, and, and uh, I was suppose I was doubting myself. You know, people that were coming through the door were telling me, you know, this is brilliant, this is brilliant, but I was never really happy with it, but now I am. Tell me a bit more about that. What were the doubts that you were having as you were building it? What, what were you concerned about? You know, if I was letting people, if, if if people were coming through here for free, that's different, you know, just, it didn't matter. But the fact that we do have to charge an admission fee, because we put everything we had into this place, right? we weren't rich people. And and actually everything now still goes back into the place. That's the thing, you know, we want to, we just want to, want to, want to keep it interesting for people. But, but it it was really that, it was just really doubting myself to, to whether, whether it was worthy of opening up, you know, but, but when, when, when we had people, visitors and tourists and even locals coming through, they said, mate, you've done a great job here. Was there any one particular piece that you bought, you know, like one day you're hanging up a picture or you're looking at a prop or something that you were like, okay, I think I've, I think I've turned the corner with this specific thing. Yeah, there was actually, Eric, and it's funny because it's not something big because pe- when people say to me, what, you know, what, what was the piece that really did it for you? And they expect me to say, oh, this card or this or this. It was when the sound mixer, Bruce Lamshed, who won an Australian Film Institute Award for the sound on this film, Bruce contacted us, but he'd kept the boomerang, metal boomerang, and the original Happy Birthday music box from Mad Max 2 to take the sound from. Now, these are only small pieces, but everybody remembers the boomerang and the feral kid. If you haven't seen the second Mad Max movie, there's a little kid who grew up in this post-apocalyptic world. He looks like he's never had a haircut. He doesn't even know language. And he throws a silver boomerang, which is so sharp, it can kill members of an evil punk biker gang. Later on, Max wins over the kid with the music box. Now, they were quite expensive, and it, uh, it, it was a bit of a shock when he first told us exactly how much he wanted for them. But I thought, no, we have to get these pieces. And people ask me now, they say, if, do you have a favourite piece? And I say, well, there isn't a favourite piece I have, but... 
if I had to grab something quickly and run, it would definitely be the boomerang and the music box. Did were you able to uh, see Fury Road or Furiosa being filmed? I feel like they they should have given you a cameo or something. Well, do you know it's it's funny um, it's funny Eric because I've waited forty years to be in a Mad Max movie, and when when they put out the brief for what they needed for extras, it turned out that I was too old. Too fat and too many tattoos. And I was too fat by two inch. I'm a 34 inch waist and they wanted 32. But we did get an invite out there to the set. Now, um, unfortunately for me, I couldn't go because the museum for me, Eric, is priority. And it was very, very busy at the time. It was on a Saturday and there was no way I could close the doors. So I said to Linda, I said, look, why don't you go out there, take the grandson Zannon and, and take us with the son Grant? And uh, and so they did. So they went out there and they actually had a quick chat with George Miller, but they were taken out. They were really well looked after. This was fantastic. You know, they were, so they were taken out to the base camp, which is just beyond the Monday, Monday lookout. And then they were taken on a minibus out to the set. So, but unfortunately I didn't, um, I didn't get to see, <laughs> didn't get to see anything, but we did have some of the other actors come through and the crew members uh, came through here and they literally bought nearly all our T-shirt supplies. But it's put us in this great position now, Eric. You know, we get to meet wonderful people through the day and then we've got all the peace and tranquility and a, and a sky full of stars on a night, which is, which is fantastic. You know, it's just, it, I'm, I'm, I'm where I want to be, what, doing what I want to do. So that there's nothing else, you know, if somebody says to me, what would you like to do if you had $10 million? I say, well, I'm doing it now and I don't need the $10 million. I'm so happy to, you know, wake up every morning and be able to talk to people about, you know, a film I'm passionate about and a film that they're passionate about. And, you know, you make good friends. So I've got no complaints. If I tell you what, if I complained about anything, Eric, I'd have to have a, a few good words with myself, you know, because I've, I've ended up in a position where I should be just grateful for, you know, for everything. So and that's how I feel, you know, which is so I'm pretty lucky in that respect. There's an old joke or cliche where at the end of a story, the character says, you know, the real treasure was the friends we made along the way. But in this case, it's kind of true. One of the most consistent things that I heard from people is that while they really appreciate the money that comes from tourism, when the tourists are gone, they also feel very isolated. I mean, it's great to have these moments where you go to a location and you feel like you're right there in the movie or the show, But after the fantasy melts away, and you start to discover the real people who actually live there, that can be another kind of magical moment, too. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Jen Cresswell, Elena Shemek, Catherine Ferry, and Adrian Bennett. By the way, if Jen's voice sounded familiar, she was in my episode Toy Stories from 2020. I have links to their tours in the Mad Max Museum in the show notes. Also, thanks to Joel Sund and the listeners who suggested this idea. If you really like this episode, you should check out my episode, The Real Twin Peaks from 2017. It's about people who live in the towns where Twin Peaks was filmed and how the show affected their lives. My assistant producer is Stephanie Billman. And if you'd like to advertise on Imaginary Worlds, let us know at contact at imaginaryworldspodcast.org, and I'll put you in touch with our ad coordinator. The best way to support the show is to donate on Patreon. At different levels, you can get either free Imaginary World stickers, a mug, a t-shirt, and a link to a Dropbox account, which is the full-length interviews of every guest in every episode. You can also get access to an ad-free version of the show through Patreon, and you can buy an ad-free subscription on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to the show's newsletter at imaginaryworldspodcast.com. 
www.thepeopleshow.org. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale, it's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. <laughs> 